Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Prendeville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. Today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Uh, today, we will continue the series that will lead us to the philosophical background that drives our professorship today. Uh, you'll recall in episode 66, we discussed the Congress of Vienna and a new uh, landscape which created uh, Marxism. Uh, this all started with Podcast 61, which was about Western culture in general. So if you're just catching up or just tuning in now, be sure to uh, check that one out. You'll want to revis revisit that and the episodes prior to it as well. Today, uh, we'll be examining the emerging uh, American academic scene uh, as well as the end of the Victorian era in Europe and the brewing of World War I. Uh, for reference, this will be about 1871 to about 1913. And eventually, this will help us decipher the background for the crime of the century. In some respects, the uh, American academic scene has always been rather radical. You see, if anyone had a book in colonial America and certainly in early American history, uh, it was the Bible and that's what they read. And for the most part, obviously, uh, in, in those days, uh, the Bible was read pretty conservatively and thus the populace and political attitudes of a lot of people were, for today's standards, pretty conservative. But the universities here did not hand out doctorates. So if you wanted to become a professor or display your credentials by getting a doctorate, which puts you at the very pinnacle of academic thought, or at least that's what it symbolizes, you would have to go outside the United States. Obviously, this has changed. But it was not so in the early days of the United States. And to get a doctorate, a lot of the professors would go to uh, countries like Germany. Now, we discussed the formation of Germany uh, last week, where we mentioned uh, Bismarck and his role in uh, really playing each of the great powers off of each other to the point where he could actually legitimately form uh, the German state, something which the English and the French were, were very much against. In theory, again, he was able to play the geopolitics of his time uh, to legitimize his ambitions. And that's not to make him seem, that's not to disparage Bismarck. He's a very, he's probably one of the greatest uh, politicians, not only of his day, but maybe even uh, in time in general, he is certainly up there with the greats because just the way he was able to use the and, and work the system without being a an oppressor. But one of the things that was happening and going on, and we mentioned this briefly in the past uh, episode, and it's something that we have to mention, but is unfortunately, um, unfortunately a sad reality of the time, especially in, in, in Germany, where 
you had famous artists and composers like uh, Richard Wegener, who often wrote about the, and I'll put air quotes around this because it's it's silly to even utter it, but um, they talked. To, he talked about the this shadowy cabal of Jews that that ran the banking system, and how Jewish people were the enemies of Germany, and this was not mainstream thought in Germany among the the general people but in academic circles it was and the anti-semitic sediments were unfortunately giving rise to the, the this culture that didn't see Jewish people in particular as Germanic. Now, many of the attitudes held towards uh, of black people were a little bit more universal. Uh, obviously, you had uh, in England until the 1830s, you had slavery, and, and in France until the 1830s, uh, roughly, you had slavery. So it was not this generation, we were only about one generation removed from slavery. And it was an unfortunate time in human history where we didn't know what to, how to deal with freed slaves. Now, a logical person, you would think you would deal with them the way you deal with any other person and treat them with respect, but there was a trend, especially after Charles Darwin discovered uh, what would become the theory of evolution that I suppose in a way to justify their parents' actions, uh, a lot of the younger men and women, and even in some cases scientists, would argue that black people were dumber or somehow incapable in some sort of way. Sometimes they would say they were not as powerful athletically. Sometimes they would say that, um, you know, well, the, the most common argument was that they were dumb and, and couldn't form great sentences. You had the, this is actually where the stereotype of uh, black people and watermelon comes from. There was a famous postcard, um, I believe in the United Kingdom, which was sold and it, it essentially, it, it was this, um, black person, a caricature of a black person, uh, eating a, a big watermelon, and, 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 and in broken English it says, I is so happy. And the idea was um, you would sell it in uh, southern areas of the United States. It was printed by someone who wasn't in the U.S., and you would send that throughout Europe. And it was, you know, oh, look how different the people are here. They eat this fried chicken stuff and, and oatmeal and grits and, um, you know, they speak broken English. And it kind of became a, a, a black thing, quote unquote. So this race, this pseudoscience, this Darwinism that, that people of a different skin color are stupid and dumb and they're going to die off eventually or that they're bringing us all down 
with them. That is held in a lot of academic circles at this time. Not just the academic circles, if we, as we've just discussed, the ideas are in the society, but they are not, they're not being acted on as they would in the 20th century. The unfortunate aspect is when these professors, remember now, they've gone out to get their doctorates to Europe. When they come back, they don't mess, mesh with American society. And this is not to say that, that post-war, post-Civil War America was this, this, you know, beautiful place. I'm not, I'm not trying to painted as some sort of utopia, but the attitudes towards, especially in uh, places like New York and some of the larger cities, even Boston, the attitudes towards Jewish people, the especially uh, attitudes in the North towards uh, black people really changed when these, a lot of these professors came back. and. And they had learned, uh, in many cases, and, and much from the, the German philosophy, that essentially you live and your work is for the state because the state symbolizes society at large. And that's because in the German or Germanic philosophy, that's because there is no God. And so you don't. Your, your agency is more of, you have to win. And the only way you win is if, is if everybody else loses. Unfortunately, we know how that plays out. But the other thing, and this comes to, to geopolitics, because I don't want to make it sound like uh, Germany was this barbaric place where, where people were shooting each other in the streets. That's not how it was. It was it was a Victorian era society in general was this weird mix of old aristocratic traditions with this newfangled uh, industrial revolution. So you'd have in the wealthier areas you'd have um, upper class women in these and these big white dresses and those those big old hoop skirts that you've seen where. They just, you know, make the women look 10 times bigger than they actually are. And the men all have their bowler hats on and, and top hats. And some of the wealthier men will wear a shoulder cape and maybe they have um, a scepter looking cane. It's, it's, it's an interesting fashion time. But Berlin became the center of power. And we mentioned this in uh, the previous episode, that in Europe, throughout history, uh, you can sometimes judge by where treaties are signed or drafted with who has the power. So in the, really even in the, in the 1300s, in the 1400s, uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, there were treaties, many uh, famous treaties, 
that were signed in Paris, uh, were signed in uh, France in general, because France was the dominant land power. So the center of power was in, we'll say Paris for all intents and purposes, but um, France was the dominant country. Then shortly after the Napoleonic Wars, but before Ger the creation of Germany, you had multiple treaties that were drafted in London as England was the naval power, England was the most industrialized, uh, the United Kingdom truly owned the world. And so now as we get into the late 17, uh, 1870s and early 1880s, Berlin became the center of power. Germany has now surpassed England in terms of industrialization. Germany had passed England in terms of, or at least matched her military strength. I'm including both uh, land and naval in that. The English had a far had had a better navy, but the uh, and this has nothing really to do with what we're talking about. But just as a fun side note, the English. I've never really had a great military on, on land in terms of, uh, you know, they don't have the size of a, of a classical French army or the technical prowess of uh, the German countries, but it's always been made up for by either the Air Force or the Navy. And that's the same here. Regardless, in addition to the theories on race, in addition to the attitudes of many of these academics, Europe at this time had uh, successfully colonized Africa. The Zulu had been defeated. The uh, African tribes really didn't stand a chance. This, this, the Turks had begun enslaving them in the 1500s and it was this very long, drawn-out process where essentially all of the young men that could have led the tribe uh, were slaves, were dead. And as a result, when the Europeans came in, and they were much more advanced in terms of their technology anyways, there was no one to stop them. And this really, and it's, and this contributed to the idea that black people were stupid is because they were not as well advanced. Their tribes were, well, tribal. And so the victory over the dark continent, quote unquote, uh, really, for many academics, you always get this sense that a detachment, th there's always this detachment. Uh, Dennis Diderot, who wrote the first encyclopedia, uh, was writing in the 1750s. Now, he had never been to the New World. He had never been, he was a French philosopher, never been to the New World, had never really even set foot on a ship, yet he wrote about the noble savages, he called it, which essentially was that uh, white people and, and, and Europe was this evil place, which came over and destroyed this Eden that the, uh, the, the Indians had built uh, here in, the, in what would be the United States today. And 
you know, we're the bad guys, essentially, is what he was writing. And you can see that philosophy still play out uh, in modern academia today. My point being that when the academics wrote about Africa and finding all the gem mines and the gold and the jewels and all of the stuff that is in Africa that's valuable, there was this sense, because many of them, especially the, the fiction writers that were writing it, had never been to Africa, portrayed and would draw up essentially caricatures. And this really changed the nature of society. And, and, and today we can see a lot of the effects of that, that if you've been paying attention and, and we haven't mentioned it on this program, and uh, I, I probably won't mention something like this again, but when someone like a Ilhan Omar goes on and talks about the evil Jews and then the New York Times backs her up, that is not an isolated not an isolated incident. The New York Times, which was founded as kind of one of these more elitist newspapers, has always been anti-Semitic, and you can trace it back to how the journals were taught, who taught them, who had the wealth, and, and taught that things like, you know, black people are dumber because their skin is black, which sounds stupid. At least it sounds stupid to me, but People thought that, and they even tried to prove it with science, and of course, the science proved them wrong, and you know, there's the best proof is, of course, uh, Jesse Owens winning um, in the Berlin Olympics in 1936 right in front of Hitler, but regardless, the actions and, and or lack of action on many of the academics part to actually think about the way that society had been and the way that it was shifting, the way that we were dealing with this new science really came back to bite us and we're, we're still feeling the effects of it, though not as bad as it was. After, and this is more going back to, to geopolitics so we know where we stand. After the Berlin Conference, which was uh, in the late 1870s, early 1880s, um, you know, Europe is in pretty relative peace. You have uh, the Ottoman Empire falling apart and pulling out of, uh, uh, you know, the Balkan regions, but Aside from that, there is no grand military conflict. There's not even really regional conflict. That war, Europe had not seen large-scale war since the Napoleonic era, and most of those people were older and, from all accounts, kind of romanticized what had happened. And of course, the only, there was no photos, there was no, so there was only paintings which glorified the war, which made it seem as though it was all glory and nobody really suffered. It was like a big game, essentially. And this left the public at large and even, even the academics really kind of pining for a conflict that 
they wanted to prove themselves as, as men. So they wanted to go out and do what their fathers had done. And they had not really been given the opportunity. You had things like the Crimean War. I'm not saying that it was perfect, but it was done mostly with standing armies. You know, you didn't have 10 million people drafted and then, you know, they're all fighting in the trenches together. It was more so people who had voluntarily joined the army uh, were part of this, this standing army that went and saw the world. And occasionally you would fight the Russians uh, to support the Turks, but that's a whole nother story. Regardless, uh, and this, that does have a point to it. Regardless, uh, Bismarck resigns in 1890. And this is because King, now King Wilhelm uh, II, sees Be Bismarck's web of alliances that he had crafted where he had pulled uh, Italy close to him through a defensive pact. He had moved the Russians closer to him with a, a essentially triple defensive pact between himself, Austria, and Russia, which made all three countries feel that much safer, especially on the borders. He had used the English crown and English ancestry, which was German, to pull them closer to him. And the result was that through this web of alliances, France was diplomatically isolated. France did not like Germany. France was mad because the Germans had taken uh, what they thought was rightfully theirs, which was this province called uh, Assas-Lorraine, which is contested. I'm not getting into that. That's, that is dicey between the two countries. Regardless, Germany had won it in the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, which led to the formation of Germany. And the French people and French political thought of the day was kind of pining for this, this revanchism. They taught in, in, in French schools how evil the Germans were, that, that, that they should be punished, that they stole French land, that the Germans are your enemy. And when Wilhelm came to the throne and Bismarck resigned, Wilhelm was a nationalist through and through, and that's not a, that's not a bad thing. It's not, loving your country is not a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. But he took it to the extreme where there's only, there's only Germany and everybody else is terrible. And any alliance which is there for defensive purposes essentially um, is useless. It's his geopolitical thought. So he pulls the carpet out from Russia and he breaks this uh, treaty that they have uh, with Austria and uh, themselves. He does the same with Italy, though not to the same degree as, as Russia was really, uh, they were going through obviously a lot of social issues. And so they're uh, having that pulled out from under and they felt like Germany was planning something. So they decided to reapproach France um, right about the turn of the century in 1900. And at the same time, Wilhelm wanted colonies. Bismarck was notoriously against the colonies. He thought they were a waste of time and money and would get Germany involved in situations that they shouldn't have been in. 
But Wilhelm wanted, out of his pride and his pride for Germany, he wanted colonies. And he wanted more so to beat the English when it came to colonies. Now, England at this point owned all of India. England owned mathematically 40% of the world. Two-fifths of the world's population in some way, shape, or form lived under the English crown. I don't know how Wilhelm thought he was going to pull this off in a matter of... That, that, that process took about 200 years, multiple wars, the grace of God, luck. I don't know how Wilhelm thought he was going to do this in 30 years. He's going to give it the old college try, I guess, because, uh, and no pun intended here, because he starts rapidly expanding the German Navy. He's building, in those days it was uh, battleships first, so he was building these massive battleships, and he was building uh, cruisers, and he's building destroyers, and he's building, and this really worries the English. Germany is not too far away from the United Kingdom. Germany could feasibly, if it had a stronger navy than the English Isles, Germany could conceivably invade England. The English don't like that prospect. Knowing this, the French began to use this to play into the English fears that, that Germany is more so a, a rival than an ally. And by 1903, the two sides had, France and England, had really started what was called the Great Reconciliation. The two sides had really put across, uh, down the historical differences and both started to recognize Germany as the main threat. And that's how you get the modern alliance between the United Kingdom and, and France. Obviously, it wasn't strong then. Uh, it was two world wars against Germany that really strengthened that bond. But now as we get to, and, and the point I'm going to get here before we jump back to the United States, is the Moroccan crisis of uh, 1910. Sorry, 1911. Morocco was a French colony at this point. And the French had a relatively large naval base there uh, at the province called Casablanca. Obviously, there's a famous uh, movie of the same title. But the French naval um, uh, supremacy in the Mediterranean, or attempt to achieve naval supremacy in the Mediterranean region, was of course being blocked in some respects by Italy, but there was a German warship that traveled down uh, the coast of France, and essentially the Germans were poking around, and, and there was no shots fired or anything, but there was an issue where essentially the, the, the Germans wouldn't leave. The, the French said essentially that this was their space, and uh, to respect that, and the Germans said that they had a right to move through uh, the space near uh, Gibraltar, and the two of them, uh, diplomatic relations between the two countries were already bad, and this didn't make it any better. But because of uh, cooler heads prevailed at that point, there was no declaration of war, no nothing like that, but they came very, very close in this crisis.
But see, the general public doesn't know what's about to hit them in the next two years. To them, it's going to be this glorious war that, that they've been waiting so long to, to prove themselves in that they were ready to fight for their country. And again, you have this idea really that's starting to come out that there's no God and you have to you fight for the state. So as that's starting to take hold, people are starting to rally behind the idea that that war is not only necessary but good in the sense that that's how you prove you're you're the dominant race. So the the, the general public was was not apprehensive the way we are to war, where uh, you know Trump starts talking to Iran too harshly and, and people start to freak out. It was more so people are waiting with bated breath at this point where they're they're almost kind of hoping in this weird sadistic way that that something does happen here. But the Moroccan crisis fizzles out. The two sides stay at peace. But also during this time in the Balkans, which was at that point uh, partly controlled by Austria, if you Albania counts and the Ottomans held Albania which wanted independence and was willing to take arms you had the Russians attempting to gain influence in the region and you had of course the Austrians who owned land proper but then also wanted to expand their influence into Serbia and other nations so the the tinderbox of Europe has uh, as it was referred to really has always been uh, uh, the Balkans and throughout this time you had uh, Serbia trying to intervene into uh, Bulgarian affairs you had the Albanians as we mentioned before trying to revolt against the Ottomans you had the Greeks attempting to encroach uh, and expand their own space I'm sorry um, and this leads to a situation in which multiple countries could get involved again because you have the Russians that are trying to intervene and protect uh, the Romanians and the Serbians. You have the Austrians who own Bosnia and are trying to exert themselves over Serbia in an attempt to keep Serbia quiet as, as she believes that Austria owns her rightful provinces. And this is where you get a lot of the, the anger in uh, Serbia at the time. Again, because people are ready for war, they want a war, they don't know what's coming and they, they think that through this they will prove how great Serbia is as this great upstart nation now that the Ottomans have fallen, uh, fallen off. But the small skirmishes, for lack of a better word, uh, in the Balkans at this time, really if they, were sol if they were solved through military force, it was done again through uh, standing armies. It was not done by a drafted army which usually re results in kind of a, a Vietnam situation where eventually people start to question the validity of the war and uh, and the reason for it as people die uh, who didn't necessarily want to join the army. Not the case necessarily here where a lot of the people who were fighting were either uh, you know had volunteered. This was their job. This is what they liked doing or this is what they wanted to do. And 
you don't have the same anti-war sentiment that you did, that you, that you do today. Uh, and, and I want to jump over to the United States at this point. Because we often think kind of early United States where we're, you know, a bunch of farmers and, and really coming out of the colonial era and then, you know, the Civil War hits and it's a small setback, but then we kind of become this industrial powerhouse that, that wins the wars. That is a simplified view of it. Not, that's not totally inaccurate, but that's, that's a, a simplified view. Really, what began to happen with the progressive movement, it was, again, started in the upper echelons of society. It was started by a lot of these professors who had gone to Germanic schools, some French schools, and had learned much of this racial superiority theories that had been introduced to Marxism, that had been embroiled in Rousseauian democracy, all of the things that are anti-American, save for Rousseauian democracy, with Marxism be being the most anti-American thing you can think of. These academics come back and, and essentially through their teaching, a progressive movement starts up. Now, of course, you have to ask, in order to progress, you have to have a goal. You have to progress to something. That's potential. We've talked about this. So the question is, what are we progressing to? Well, they would argue a fairer society. Well, who judges what is the fair society? The Marxists do. And that means an equality of outcomes in many cases. And so in order to achieve that in the United States, you had to get rid of a lot of the laissez-faire systems. So in 1913, and I have a whole teaching series on this. We, we talk about the Federal Reserve a lot. But for the purpose of, of, of this discussion, we need to know here that the Federal Reserve was not just born out of greed, but also out of the progressive movement. And the idea was to protect the working class by centralizing the power in a bank. Of course, we know the ill effects of this. Again, I have plenty of, of series on that. Uh, if you need extra help on understanding the Fed, um, but that's not the purpose of this discussion. The other big bureaucracy that came out was the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. This was done uh, in response to a lot of the meat packing factories and their horrible conditions, their horrible habit of uh, being too close to fertilizer factories and, and getting, uh, you know, poison in, in meats and, and not being handled in a sanitary way. And, and so the progressives used a lot of these fears in order to push for the FDA, which is a group of unelected bureaucrats that make policy and make laws on what businesses can and can't do. 
This goes against the founding documents in the sense that that's Congress's job. The idea is that you have a debate about the law before you actually implement it. Now, on an emotional level, when you say, you know, they're putting rat poison in my steak, you know, you can, you can make an argument based on that, that, oh, well, we need to jump in quickly. But in principle, what if the FDA says you can't have straws? Now, we know that that science is faulty. We know that much of the plastic pollution in the world comes from India and China. We know that that's a, an overreach in the private lives of citizens, as trivial as it may seem. So something like that is unconstitutional. Any body making that decision is unconstitutional, yet that's, that's the kind of, of programs and government expansion that was proposed during this era. When people like, uh, and one of my favorite guys, who is, is, is very, very underrated, one of my favorite uh, more conservative commentators, funny guy, knows what he's talking about, is a, a guy named uh, Andrew Clavin. He's, uh, he's over with Ben Shapiro at the, at the Daily Wire. Um, I try to catch his, he does a, a show um, pretty much every, uh, every day and I try to catch it, you know, when I can. He often talks about the, the, the fact that the founders essentially didn't assume that Congress would kick their power up to the president or the, that, that Congress would delegate their power to this unelected body because, of course, the idea by splitting the powers is that you check ambition with ambition. That every power that you have is equally checked by another part of the government. We've been over that with Montesquieu, I think it was in episode 64. Now, the bureaucrat takeover here has led to situations where you have, uh, you know, financial advisors can't make a website if they're involved in, in, in stock exchange and security exchanges. You have situations where uh, Flint, Michigan's water turns into the sewer water. For some reason, I don't know how, you know, the right got blamed for that, that somehow it was some evil corporation where it was the EPA deciding, oh, this is a cheaper water source, let's use that. And it wrecked the entirety, the, their water system. The progressive movement was a concerted attempt that in many respects succeeded in reordering, reordering an American society that instead of going from the bottom up, went from the top down in terms of who's calling the shots. Now as we get into next week, World War I, we're going to see how that plays out and how Woodrow Wilson uh, reconfigured the world and he didn't do it alone. So we're going to see these progressive policies play out, but more so we're going to look at and strengthen the connection between the academic universities, how they're viewed by the American public, what they believe, we've already found out why they believe it, where they get their information from, and this will help us really start to understand all of the things that have gone into creating where we are. We've gone about, really, when you think about how far we've come, we're, we're talking about in Podcast 62, we're talking about the Reformation and Martin Luther. We're talking about 
the idea of God before people even knew that America existed. This landmass was even here. The New World, we, we've come from here all the way up to machine guns and a world we can understand. So don't underestimate your growth and knowledge here. And, and, and I don't want you to, to, to think that this is willy-nilly. We are building to a point where we can see the disconnect between those who teach us and what we believe. And because of this, it is the best description and way of communicating why exactly this is the crime of the century.